Continuing through the gospel according to Luke. Last week we covered verses 1 through 4. Today we come to verses 5 through 13. So let's give our attention to the reading and the hearing of God's holy, inspired, and an errant word. Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 5. And Jesus said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because of his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. Thank you for giving it to us through your prophets and apostles and even here, Lord, recorded for us the very words of our Lord Jesus. Thank you for sustaining these words for us through the ages that we might have them this day. It's been read in a language that we understand and we come to you now in humility asking, oh God, that you would give us more than human understanding. Would you grant us spiritual understanding? Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things. Teach us and train us, correct us, even rebuke us for righteousness sake. Oh Lord, work in the hearts of your people by your spirit. And oh Lord, help me, your servant. Protect me from error. Lord, we ask all these things. In the strong name of our only Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So in orphanages all around the world, there is an eerie silence. Not because they are empty. On the contrary, they're quite full. One author tells of this silence, the silence that he and his wife encountered when they were in Ukraine last decade to adopt their two sons. One of the the main rooms was filled with cribs and each crib had a baby, say three to 12 months old, lying in it. But there was no crying. No matter what time of day they came to visit, there was no crying. Some of you have heard of this phenomenon, and the explanation for it is, if I could put it in one word, heartbreaking. You see, these particular children, the ones, you know, who are of this age, three months and older, they've been conditioned to a very harsh reality. Like every other baby, they're born with the ability to cry when they have a need. They cry when they're cold. They cry when they're hungry. 
They cry when they're not feeling well. They cry when they're lonely. They cry when they need a change of diaper. Born with this ability, they exercise it early on. But in these orphanages, these children have no counterpart that is also born with a compassion to respond to their cries. There's no parent who immediately runs to them in their time of need. Now, there are workers there, and you may or may not know that most orphanages have around one worker for every 20 to 30 children that are there. That worker cannot respond to every cry, so usually they respond to none. They set strict schedules and follow that pattern. They let happen what happens inevitably in just about every case. The child learns that no one responds to their cries. So they learn to cope. They learn to soothe themselves. So they just stop crying. They cope on their own and they soothe themselves. So they stop crying. And you're looking at me like, Pastor Dan, what in the world are you doing? Why did you start the sermon in such a sad way? I know sad. It's heartbreaking. But I share that because I want to help you grab a hold of the central point that Jesus is making in our text today. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you what that point is right up front. If you are a child of God, if you are his son or daughter through faith in Jesus Christ, if you call God Father, that no matter what you faced in this life, you are certainly not an orphan. He hears your cries and he certainly responds to them. That is the heart, dare I say the heartbeat of our text today. And it's my sincere hope that that truth, this truth that you are indeed not an orphan, Pray that it encourages and strengthens your heart and produces boldness, produces assurance as you pray to your heavenly father. Last week, as I said, we looked at Luke 11, one through four. You'll remember that the disciples came to Jesus with a reasonable request, one that was very common of that day. Rabbis taught their disciples how to pray. And so they came to him and said, Jesus, teach us to pray. And Jesus followed by giving this disciple and all of us a pattern, a pattern for prayer that we now know as the Lord's Prayer. You might remember it has two petitions, right? Two vertical petitions for God, for God's holiness to be made known and for his rule to be embraced throughout the world. And then there were three petitions for us, right? Kind of horizontal petitions uh, for daily provision was one of those three. The second was daily pardon or forgiveness. And third was daily protection. But as clear as that pattern is, Jesus isn't done teaching. He's not fully given the answer to the request to teach us to pray. Hey, he gave a pattern for the words that are to be said. And, and we can even repeat those words just as they're recorded for us. 
But in these verses, in verses five through 13, he moves from just words to attitude. He moves from form to heart. And he does it in the way that Jesus often does this. He does it by parables. He gives two parables actually in our text and each one has their own accompanying application and promise. So let's consider the first of these parables, which you'll find in verses five through 10. And here in this parable, we learn that God is the greater friend. So if you're taking notes this morning, this is our first point. You can write it down. The greater friend. God is the greater friend. If we're to fully understand this parable, we first need to know something about the culture particularly the cultural context here. And and this time and this day where Jesus was here on earth, hospitality was not just something you made time for. Hospitality was a sacred duty. Whenever a guest arrived, especially if they're a friend, if you were the host, you had a holy obligation to provide a meal for them. I think you can imagine this pretty clearly if you think back to those days. Travel was really hard. There wasn't a Holiday Inn or a Hilton at every intersection, let alone fast food restaurants. Travel was difficult. Guests would expend the food that they brought with them and they would usually arrive very hungry. So the first order of business when this guest arrived at your home was to make a meal for them. It was an obligation, a duty to make a meal for them. Sounds familiar, right? Just a few weeks ago, we looked at how Jesus and all of his followers showed up at Mary and Martha's house. And what did Martha do? She went right to work making a meal because that's what you did. That's ingrained in who they are. Essential to a meal in this day, if you don't know about this, is bread. My son's not in here. He loves bread. He would probably say amen. But essential to this meal in this part of the world, bread was at the heart of it. One author puts it this way. He said, bread was the knife, the fork, and the spoon with which the meal was eaten. Laid before you were meats and maybe hummus and different other things. And you would use the bread to dip and to sop it up and and eat it. Bread was the main part. So you can see that the man in this story is in a real bind. He's in a real bind. It's a point made clear in verse six. You can look there. He actually says, I am empty handed. I have nothing to set before my friend and my guest who has shown up at my house. I have nothing. I have an obligation to serve a meal to my friend, but I don't have what I need to be able to do it. So he's left with only one thing to do, to go and ask his other friend, perhaps his neighbor. I mean, so serious, I hope you see this, that so serious was this obligation that yes, you would even go and wake your friend up at midnight, in the middle of the night for help. And some of you are thinking, huh? So I'll ask you this way, what would you What emergency could pop up in your life that would be worth waking up your friend in the middle of the night? What would cause you to do that? 
you immediately think, Pastor Dan, use the right word, emergency. I don't wanna impose on them, right? I don't wanna, I don't wanna bother them. Or I'll just put off my guests till the morning or maybe I'll order Domino's. I don't know if camels delivered to that area where they were staying, I don't know. The idea is, is that this was a big deal. And so whatever you think is such a big deal that you would go and bother a friend in the middle of the night to get something, such was the feeling that is here. The cultural context tells us that this emergency is just like any emergency we might encounter. So that's why Jesus asks the parable as a question. Which of you who has a friend in this emergency, when he comes to you, you will not help him? You see, you're just as duty bound to help your friend who comes and asks you. So he's saying, which of you, if your friend in this emergency came to you in the middle of the night, would you not respond? I mean, the expected answer is clear. No one, none of us, we would all jump up to help. That's what makes this story so absurd to the original audience, to the original hearers. No one would ignore such demands and just lay there giving emphatic refusals. I don't know, maybe you caught this. There's actually five refusals that he gives, five reasons why he can't help. First, he doesn't want to be bothered. Don't bother me. My door is closed. My children are with me. Now that may seem weird to you, but in that culture and that time, and even still in some places in the world, it's common for a whole family to share a bed, one bed, because they may only have one room or even one room for the whole house for everyone to sleep in. Do not bother me. My door is closed. My children are with me sleeping. I cannot get up. I cannot give you anything. In this context, none of these answers are persuasive, especially a friend. He can get up. He can open the door if it's closed. He can give him the bread that he likely has. He can even tuck the kids back into bed and they can all go back to sleep. See, the absurdity of the whole thing is to teach us that the issue at hand is not that the friend couldn't help. It's that the friend wouldn't help. That's the problem. The friend won't help. So the heart of the parable comes in verse eight. Look there again with me. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. That word, it might sound funny to us because we're not used to using it impudence or impudence, however you pronounce it. It's interesting, actually. Uh, the King James, some of you may be using that. It translates it as importunity, which may be just as hard to understand. The NIV, uh, in some of the newer versions of the NIV, says shameless audacity. I like that one. Others even persistent because of his persistence. Well, Merriam-Webster defines impudence as being marked by contemptuousness or cocky boldness. I actually think that's the better. I think the ESV has chosen the better English equivalent because it matches really well with the definition of the original Greek word. And I'm not gonna bore you with all that, but that original word that it translates conveys an idea of acting without any sensibility to shame or disgrace. 
I'm unashamed, I'm not gonna be disgraced, I'm gonna beat on this door until you give me what I want. And because of that, Jesus tells us he gives them what he wants. The man just keeps knocking because he doesn't care what his neighbor says or thinks. He possesses the sheer audacity to just keep pounding on that door and asking for what he needs until he gets it. Why is Jesus telling us this story? Because he's saying that this is how we are to pray. Not as jerks, but rather we're to pray with the same type of boldness. He's telling us to not timidly drop hints to God about what we need, because God knows what we need. He's saying rather shamelessly present your petitions before God and keep praying about them until you get an answer. Keep praying. The point is, is that God is not anything like the friend who's behind that door, right? God is the greater friend. He's always ready and willing to help. Even if the rudest of neighbors can be persuaded to help us in the middle of the night, the argument from the lesser to the greater then, right? If even that person is willing to help, then how much more will our friend who is in heaven hear us when we pray? We picked Psalm 121 on purpose this morning. It reminds us that the Lord neither slumbers nor sleeps. He keeps watch over Israel. And though we didn't incorporate it, I'll point you to Psalm 34, all of it. Which reminds us that God loves, God loves to help his people when they are in need. Prayer is not a way to get God to do what we want him to do or to persuade him to do something that he does not want to do. That's not the point. Rather, the point is that prayer is an audaciously bold request for God to do what he has promised to do. So Jesus says, he makes this clear in verse nine, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. Again, to be very literal, he is saying this, and you can look at the tenses of the original verbs. That's what I titled the sermon. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. This is present continuous action. Keep doing it, be persistent. You can be bold in your approach to God. You can also be bold while being submissive to God's will. You can be persistent and God will answer your prayers. He may not answer them in the way you want him to. He certainly won't give us anything and everything we want. I have to remind you that this follows the very clear promises of God given in the Lord's prayer. Right? So don't take it too much out of context. God will indeed hear. God will indeed answer. And man, that's gonna get really clear when we get to verse 13. But we got some more work to do before we get there. Some of you may be saying, how can I be sure that God will answer? I mean, I've been praying for the same thing for a long time and I do believe it's good and it's God's will. How do I know he's gonna answer? I haven't heard a no. I haven't heard a yes. I haven't heard anything. I got good news for you. 
For a church that wants to stand firmly on God's word, look at what God's word says. Six times, six times it says he will answer. That's how I can tell you he will answer because Jesus says he will answer. I mean, look again in verse nine. Ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. And as if people don't get it, look at verse 10. For everyone who asks, receives. And everyone who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. That's what his word says. He will answer. I can't make promises to you that I can always keep. But God keeps his promises. Amen. So let me ask you this. How impudent are you in your prayers? How easily are you discouraged to stop asking, to stop seeking, and to stop knocking? My guess is if you're anything like me, I'm probably all too easy to move on to the next thing. It's just easier to think of something new to ask for. That's not what we're told to do. In fact, I love that we sang that old hymn by John Newton this morning, Come My Soul. Look at verse one again. You can see that in your bulletin. I think it encapsulates the biblical message clear. Come my soul, thy plea prepare. And in, in Newton's language, he used the word suit, okay? Like a lawsuit, right? Like bring your plea, your case, All right? Jesus loves to answer prayer. He himself has told you to pray, so do it. That doesn't rhyme and it's not very poetic and musical, but you know, rise and ask without delay. We'll leave that stuff to Austin. Do it, pray, pray with boldness. Again, you can be submissive to God's will and say, God, if, if it be your will, but I haven't heard if it's your will or not right now. It's, it's not against scripture. Don't pray for things that are clearly against scripture, right? This is like a whole series that can go on for months and I can't completely go over every single thing to nuance. But listen, if you're praying according to God's will and specifically if you're praying according to the Lord's prayer and it's in line with that, you can keep praying. You can keep asking. God wants you to, he invites you to. He doesn't grow tired of it. And so we can come to God, the greater friend, and we can bring with us our requests and we can do it with boldness, but that's not it. We, we don't just have to come with boldness. We can come with great assurance as well. That's the, the point or the heart of the second parable, which you can find there in verses 11 through 13. And here we see that God is the greater father. That's our second point this morning for those taking notes. God is the greater father. I've kind of already highlighted this, but you know, those promises that Jesus makes there in verses nine and 10, I mean, they're so great that I think our natural inclination is just to say they're too good to be true. I mean, it's just, it, it, it's impossible. How could God keep that? It's impossible. So Jesus, to prove that God really is this generous, he adds this next parable. Once again, he appeals to absurdity, lesser to the greater Notice what he asks. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Or in a parallel passage, ask him for bread and give him a stone, right? The obvious answer to the original audience would be none. <laughs> none of us. A man who did such a thing wouldn't be a father. He'd be no better than an enemy. Now, 
Sadly, there are such cruel men who exist in this world. There are, but the overall point still stands. No ordinary father would be so devilish as to give his son something dangerous or deadly when he asks for something good. To drive this point home and to get to the heart, Jesus quickly makes application. In verse 13, you can see it there again. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Some people have read this and said, well, Jesus is just being mean, right? Just calling fathers evil. Well, no, he's actually telling the truth. Uh, compared to the heavenly father, we are indeed the lesser. Uh, fathers in the room were the lesser of the two examples. Uh, our hearts really reflect what Jeremiah said in seventeen nine. Our hearts are desperately sick and wicked above all things, right? Um, God, on the other hand, is perfect in holiness and love. Uh, I don't think there's any competition with an earthly father versus God. God is indeed the greater father. So even if earthly fathers who are full of sin, though they might be made new in Christ, are still full of sin, know what their children need and then go to great lengths to provide for those needs, how much further lengths will our father who is in heaven go to to provide for our needs? That's the point. So if we combine this parable with the previous one, we can see that Jesus is teaching us not just to pray with boldness, but to pray with a bold assurance, an assurance that is based on the benevolence of the love that the father has for his children. Do you believe that? Do you truly know that God loves you as his child? Do you have a bold assurance that your father in heaven wants to answer even more than you want to ask? And some of you have never seen that, even a picture of it on earth. Some of you have grown up without a father or maybe with a sinful father. Some of you may have had a worldly good father, but an absent father, who knows? But the heavenly father, not like earthly fathers. He's even better. Pastor Richard Phillips tells the story of a man who once approached Alexander the Great with a financial need. The famous conqueror referred the man to his royal treasurer with the promise that he could have whatever was needed. He didn't even listen to it. He said, you have a great need, go to the treasurer, you can have what you need. Well, it didn't take long for the treasurer to come running up to Alexander in a state of panic because the man had asked for just an enormously huge sum of money. He thought there has to be some mistake. Alexander would have never told him to ask for anything and it'd be this. But Alexander calmly ordered the treasurer to go back down there and give the man exactly what he asked for. Why? This was his answer. He has treated me as a king in his asking. And so I shall be as a king to him in my giving. God, our father loves to be a king to us in his giving. 
I mean, just think about Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see, Jesus is teaching us here that God invites us to come to him and ask of him in bold assurance. Again, you can look at your bulletin. It's like Newton so wonderfully brought to our attention in this song. Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring for his grace and power are such none can ever ask too much. Again, as I did earlier, I've got to take some time to give some context. We don't want to misunderstand or misapply this. What Jesus is teaching here is not some health and wealth, name it and claim it type of prosperity jargon. Contrary to a lot of popular belief, God is not a cosmic magical vending machine in the sky who gives us exactly what we want as long as we put in the right amount of money and as long as we press the right combination of buttons. That's a lie. If God was that, he'd be a terrible father. He'd be a terrible father. Giving a child whatever they want whenever they ask for it is part and parcel with being a not very good father. But a father who knows what his children need, even when they ask for a lot of things, when he truly knows what they need, even before they ask for it, and then responds when they ask him to meet those needs, that father is indeed a good father. And based on the words at the end of verse 13, you can see even more clearly how God is most certainly the greater, if not the greatest father. Look there again. I want you to see that. How much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Is there anything more we can ask? Is there anything more we can ask for than the Holy Spirit? Can any earthly material need eclipse the greater spiritual need that we have? If if God is willing to send his own son for us, as we heard from Romans 8.32, and if he's also willing along with the son to send his spirit to live within us, right? And when the spirit lives within us, what happens? The word is illuminated to us. We understand the word. We come under conviction of sin, which leads us to repentance, which leads us to restoration and renewal with the Father. When we have the Spirit who reminds us of the gospel truths, like we're not uh, condemned in Christ, that we stand free and that we truly are God's sons and daughters. When the Holy Spirit works in us to help us grow in grace and in godliness, when we face doubts and trials and hardships and pain and suffering and the spirit reminds us that these things will not separate us from God. When we're so hurt that we don't even know what to pray about and the spirit intercedes with us and prays on our behalf. Is there any good thing? If God's able to do that, is there anything else? Any good thing that he cannot and will not give to us? What's the answer? No. God is the greater father who gives the greatest gifts to his children. He gives us even of himself to dwell within us by his Holy Spirit. And so I hope you see that we're nothing like those children who lay silent in the orphanage. Even though all too often, guess what we do? We actually live as if we are. We live as if we are. 
But just as Jesus began his teaching with reminding us of the immense privilege we have to call God our Father, that's how the prayer begins. So he's continued to teach us in this text today that we're anything but orphans. We're his sons and we're his daughters. We're his friends. He not only hears us when we cry, but as our greater father, as our greater friend, he's more than ready and he's more than willing to help us in our time of need. He ran to us in our greatest time of need when he sent Jesus and he continues to run to us, to minister to our needs, to minister out of his great storehouses of spiritual riches and blessings. Ephesians 1, 3 through 5, right? He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So I'm just gonna close by asking you a simple line of questioning. If you know God as Father, if you've come to God through faith in Jesus Christ and you can call on him as Father, why do you hold back? Why do you hold back from asking, from seeking, from knocking? Why do you keep going on trying to cope by your own devices? Why do you keep going on trying to soothe yourself with everything but him? Why? As Paul Tripp says, why are we spiritual amnesiacs? Why do we keep forgetting the great gift that God has given us? Listen, God knows your needs. God knows your desires. He knows your pain. And if you're anything like me, he knows how impatient you are. Maybe you're not with me on that, but nevertheless, if we know one thing from today's text is that God delights to answer. God delights to hear and to answer in his time and in accord with his will. So if I can encourage you to do anything, I'd encourage you to keep crying, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, keep crying. Do it with bold assurance that he has and he always will keep coming to your aid. Amen, amen.